You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. <laughs> and Ryan O. With his guitar solo intro. Yeah. Mouth mouth guitar solo. <laughs> I'm so used to that intro, man. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Welcome, uh, this listeners. This is why we do what we do. That's a great start. <laughs> Super excited. We're going to talk about Gestalt. Did I say that correctly? Gestalt. Gestalt. Psychology today. Heart, heart G. So, Which, you know, I actually, to be fair, I have heard it multiple different ways. I've heard Gestalt. I've heard Gestalt. I've heard Gestalt. And I've heard Gestalt. And uh, when I, I tried to find more sources, and the most common one I found was Gestalt as the correct pronunciation. So we're talking about that. Want to give it a shot? Let's hear it. Practice. Practice Gesh- makes perfect. Gestalt. Gesundheit. All right, <laughs> ready. <you>. <laughs> so, All right, so kick us, kick us off with this awesome Aristotle quote. Yes, and I know that this is probably going to irritate some of those pedantic nerds out there that know their quotes really well because the the quote "the whole is greater than the sum of its parts" is misattributed to Aristotle, and then therefore Aristotle becomes associated with Gestalt psychology, even though he has no association with Gestalt psychology, really. So I understand that that happens, and this is still a really good quote, so I wanted to read it. All right, so it goes like this, quote, concerning the challenge we just faced about how to describe things in numbers and definitions, what is the reason for a unity slash oneness? For however, many things have a plurality of parts and are not merely a complete aggregate, but instead some kind of a whole beyond its parts, there is some cause of it since even in bodies, for some, the fact that there is contact is the cause of unity slash oneness, while for others, there is viscosity or some other characteristic of this sort, end quote. And so really the section in there, it talks about not merely a complete aggregate, but some kind of whole beyond its parts is the thing that may have been why some people attributed that saying to Aristotle, even though he didn't actually say that. And again, he's not really talking about Gestalt psychology, but I do feel like the essence of that theme is inside of that quote there. So then we had Thomas Aquinas, uh, who quote said, and such are the proportions whose terms are known to all, as every whole is greater than its part. End quote. Nice. So yeah, we try to do our best to find the the best versions of those quotes that exist out there, and those sort of capture the essence of what we mean when we talk about gestalt. So we always have to start by defining our terms, yes. And so the term gestalt is a, if you can't tell just from the way that it sounds, so this is a German word meaning form or shape. And so gestalt psychology or gestaltism is a philosophy of mind of the Berlin School of Experimental Psychology. It is an attempt to understand the laws behind the ability to acquire and maintain meaningful perceptions in an apparently sort of chaotic, disorganized world that doesn't necessarily have natural order. And nevertheless, we seem to perceive natural order where it it exists maybe only in the way that we interact with it. So we're really good at seeing patterns, whether or not those patterns are really there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, I have a a fun example of this maybe. In the last 
few months at the time of this recording, there was a chunk of, I believe it was Antarctica that's floating around in the ocean that broke off. And it weirdly broke off in almost a perfect square. Like it's very weird really? to look at. It is a perfect geometric square that is floating in the ocean. And there's all these pictures of it. It's super interesting. And I think that it's interesting because we wouldn't normally expect fractures to take that sort of shape. And so we perceive this as a unique pattern where I think that nature doesn't care. <laughs> you know, it's just something that happened. So his central principle of gestaltism is that the mind forms a global whole with self-organizing tendencies. I don't even know what that means. Like, I mean, I think as as we go through describing this, we'll sort of be unpacking this general idea that it's talking about our tendency to create a comprehensive narrative about our experiences from turns into like sort of moment to moment awareness our own self-identity and who we define as who we are correct and and sort of what those experiences mean yeah, yeah absolutely and so there's this idea of um, like holism and this is the idea that the systems and their properties should be viewed as wholes so a, a whole integrated interconnected system not just a whole bunch of parts working together so I think the analogy or metaphor that's often used is looking at maybe a watch or a clock is just a whole bunch of gears and everything that yeah. turn that form a mechanism that tells time. But the uniqueness of telling time is something that's apart from the fact that it's just a bunch of gears and wheels that turn. And now we all have Apple watches. So there's not even that much. <laughs> and so, <laughs> or it's, I guess I should say smart yeah. watches. We're not endorsed by Apple or anything. And most, and not that many people have Apple watches. It so. reminds Sorry. me of like a recurring theme we talk about a lot on here, which is just that, like there's context that matters. There's a whole lot of reasons as to why we do what we do. Um, it is not going to be just one thing. We should be studying the entirety of a situation and understanding how all those interrelated parts, whether it's our biology or learning history, right? How those sort of things come to affect our current psychological moments and experiences. And I don't know, like this stuff doesn't seem too far away from what we're talking about uh, often on here. Um, I mean, with the, with the principle speaking, no. of like looking at things holistically, right? Yeah. Let's go ahead and dive into the history of this concept. It was at least attributed to Christian von Aaron Fellows in 1890. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be German. Like, this is a German. Yeah, yeah no, it's got to be. So uh, that was that was my attempt at that. <laughs> Although you did practice your German accent, so maybe you'd be better at saying that. Uh, Christian von Erfels. Okay, sure. Uh, there were many theories that, although he is often credited with more or less introducing this concept, this was developed, of course, out of other philosophers such as David Hume, Ernst Mach, David Hartley, and some others. A man named Max Werthmeier, or Werthmeier contributed by insisting that the gestalt is perceptually primary, defining the parts it was composed from rather than being secondary quality that emerges from those parts. So we have a couple of key terms in here to sort of get into that that you'll hear a lot that exist inside of gestalt. So these, these properties of gestalt or gestaltism, if you will, uh, one of the important ones is called emergence. And this is something that a lot of people will talk about when they sort of critique the use of that Aristotle quote, because it really doesn't necessarily lead to this. But a lot of people like this idea of emergence, which is demonstrated with a picture. It's a picture of a Dalmatian dog that's sniffing the ground in the shade of an overhanging tree. 
The dog is not recognized by first identifying the parts. You don't see its feet, ears, nose, and tail, and then inferring the dog from those component parts. Instead, the dog appears as a whole all at once. You see that not is it just a bunch of parts that are moving together, but in fact, it is a dog, and that is how we call it. So this gestalt theory does not have an explanation for how the perception of this dog appears. It's not through language and the use of metaphor. <laughs> or the fact that, I mean, if we simply look at our our recognition of something is influenced by the formal properties of the thing that we're used to seeing. And so you could break anything down into smaller and smaller and smaller parts if you want to, or put them into yeah. larger and larger and larger contexts if you want to. And the point is that even if you take something familiar and stick it in a wholly unfamiliar and unassociated context, you might not recognize that thing in exactly the same way right at first no, but, until you get it. But a, we, we can make complex discriminations. Like that's been known in psychology forever. So Right. Well, and we can make simple ones too, where if, if we're used to seeing something, then we are, uh, again, what we're attending to is all the relevant cues of that thing that make the context of experiencing yeah. that thing. And so the fact that that's how we perceive it to me isn't an interesting question because that's how we learn things. And it would be um, amazingly difficult if every time we looked at something, we had to add up all of the little individual pieces, like pixels of vision that we have and then we don't see in pixels but assuming that like we could break reality down into these visual units that were just the the smallest possible unit that we have and then construct those into an image and then assign meaning to that image would be just impossibly difficult so i think it, it makes a lot of sense that we simply react to the cues that are available to us and that those cues often have complex forms sometimes they have simple forms it doesn't really matter a cue is a cue and some cues have a lot of components and some of them only have a few so eh, that's sort of my thought is like okay cool we see a dog anyway. yeah so another principle within gestalt psychology would be this concept of multi-stability so you've probably experienced this to some extent there's that picture of a cube that's drawn with the 12 different sides like as if it was kind of like a stick figure like a box like you just drew it and you can if you focus on one point it kind of looks like a box and maybe it's going away from you but then you look another way and it kind of looks like it pops back and it's this idea that it's going back and forth this tendency of ambiguous perceptual experiences like this that pop back and forth unstably between two or more alternative interpretations there's also that picture of it's like a silhouette of a vase that also looks like it makes the silhouette of a of two human faces on either yeah. side, sort of a sort of a symmetrical. That's the same one where you can look at it and see the human faces, or you can look at it and see the vase, and that you can go back and forth between those two things is something that is perceived as being remarkable, I guess, inside of the gestalt in here. And the the cube, by the way, has six sides and twelve lines. So you said twelve yeah. sides, which would not not be a cube yeah. anymore. But that's what it I has meant. Twelve Sorry. lines. It's been an early morning when we started recording this. I also think that uh, with respect to that cube, there might be something inside of this of the fact that these are simply two dimensional lines that are drawn on a page, and yet we perceive it as if it were a cube, a three dimensional yeah. cube. At that, like we don't necessarily see it popping off of the page, but we do see something that's merely lines um, on a page that are created in such an angle that they represent a 3D object and we can interact with it as if it were that 3D object. Cool. 
Another term in here or a concept that exists inside of the Gestalt is called invariance. And this is the property of perception whereby a simple geometric object is uh, recognized independent of rotation, translation, and scale, as well as several other variations such as elastic deformations, differences in lighting, and different component features. And so if you think about, for example, that if you take a cube and you rotate it so that you only see a square face, you probably still understand that it's a cube. Like if you're holding one in your hand, you no longer simply perceive it as being a square, even though you only see one face of the cube. Um, you might also put it in different lighting and different forms and stuff like that and be able to, I guess, develop sort of a concept of a property of this thing that is is not immediately available out of the what it looks like or feels like in that exact moment, if that sort of yeah. makes sense. So things can remain consistent even when they they transfer through different mediums as part of this gestalt psychology. And so this will bring us back into the the those different quotes we had at the beginning of the holes greater than the sum of the parts and such. Uh, Kurt yes. Kafta, a famous gestalt psychologist, was known for also making it very clear that it is it is not like the whole it's not like this addition this principle of addition that all these different parts are going to add up into whatever this this whole thing is but it's actually when all these things come together this whole is something totally different and independent like it can't occur as a result of just adding all these things together but in and of itself when all these things come together it is now this unique thing does that make sense yeah this is another one of those probably miss uh misapplied quotes where he didn't exactly say that or didn't exactly say you know, uh, he may have said something similar to that or a quote was attributed to him. But yeah, yeah you're right. That yeah. That's, that, that's the gist of that whole and thing. It's the, this is the kind idea, of messy history. Yeah, here. it's kind of like the idea of like you can't just take these Legos, put them together and build your boat. But this boat is this magical thing as a result of all those parts, which is kind of weird, right? That actually reminds me that uh, at the time of this recording last year, I think it was Audi built an entire working car out of Lego parts. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, that thing was neat. So that one was not just a whole bunch of Legos stacked together. It was actually a running car, although it was also kind of just a ton of Legos <laughs> stacked together. So there's that. Um, <laughs> so let's dive into like why anyone would care about this, because generally when we talk about philosophy and philosophy of science and philosophy of psychology especially, uh, this is sort of a where the rubber meets the road sort of thing, and that people care where it's applied. And it's applied usually in a therapeutic setting. Yes. And so in Gestalt therapy, you have a couple of primary founders, or those attributed to have been the founders, which is Fritz and Laura Pearls. And they worked with a neurologist who applied principles of Gestalt to the functioning of the organism. Yeah, and it's disputed that Gestalt psychology did not influence the actual therapy. So there's seems like Laura Pearls did not prefer the term Gestalt uh, to name the emerging new therapy just because she wasn't sure if Gestalt psychologists uh, would object to it or not. Yeah, that's right. However, there were other clinical applications long before the Pearls attempted to use it. For instance, Gestalt theoretical psychotherapy is a method of psychotherapy that is based strictly on Gestalt therapy or Gestalt psychology. And its origins date back to the 1920s when Gestalt psychology founder Max Weathermere 
Kurt Lewin and their colleagues and students started to apply the holistic and systems theoretical gestalt psychology concepts in the field of psychopathology and clinical psychology. And this was uh, the guy I think I mentioned earlier, Max Verdemeyer. Verdemeyer. I don't remember. I tried with the <laughs> German. I'm sorry. I'm struggling with that. <laughs> and you, <laughs> I apologize to those who have that name and I'm just saying it so wrong. And especially if you're in Germany, I apologize. All right. Um, many developments in psychotherapy in the following decades drew from these early beginnings, such as group psychoanalysis, gestalt therapy, or catathem imaginative psychotherapy, not something that we're going to do a deep dive on right now. And then in Europe, gestalt theoretical psychotherapy in its own right has been initiated and formulated on the basis by the German gestalt psychologist and psychotherapist Hans Ergen P. Walter and his colleagues in Germany and Austria. Right. So... With respect to Gestalt and its influence and its views inside of psychology, there is this. There are a couple of concepts that are talked about. There's this productive thinking, and then you might think, what else would there be? Is it unproductive thinking? It is actually reproductive thinking. <laughs> I was thinking of other prefixes that could go there. Anyway, and this refers to, at least productive thinking refers to solving a problem with insight, and this is this quick, insightful, and unplanned response to situations and environmental interactions. And we actually did talk a little bit about insight and creativity when we did our episode on creativity. Um, and then there's the reproductive thinking, which is solving a problem with previous experience and what is already known. And the, so this is very common thinking. For example, when a person is given several segments of information, they deliberately examine the relationship among its parts, analyze their purpose, the concept, and the totality. And then that person reaches this sort of aha moment using what's already known, understanding in this case what happens intentionally by this reproductive thinking. Does that make sense? Yes. And then there is some, also some research in cybernetic and, uh, and neurological research as well. So in the 1940s and 1950s, laboratory research in neurology and what became known as cybernetics on the mechanism of frogs' eyes indicate the perception of gestalts, in particular gestalts in motion, is perhaps more primitive and fundamental than seeing as such. This is described as being contrary to the behaviorist approach. Gestalt psychologists believe that to understand the organization of cognitive processes, our brain is capable of generating whole forms, particularly with respect to the visual recognition of global figures, instead of just collections of simple and unrelated elements. All right. So one thing that we have talked about a little bit on this podcast is at times, uh, we actually had one of the, the co-founders. Uh, Dr. Steve Hayes on in December of 2017, if anybody wants to go back to the archives. And we also had Jonathan Tarbox on, who also does ACT therapy as well. Yeah. He's a major contributor to that field. And this idea is ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, sometimes called acceptance and commitment training now. And the idea is that essentially it's a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy. You have components of this mindfulness that are coming in, but you also have components of traditional cognitive behavioral therapy in the sense of a talk form and understanding language and how it affects your thinking and your larger psychology and your behavioral patterns um, with a taste of the old behavioral components as well um, that came from behavior analysis. So, And so what's interesting is that for those who are familiar with ACT, um, this acceptance and commitment training, and what we've already described as gestalt, you may have noticed that there, there seems to be some potential overlap in how some of those concepts are talked about. 
And so it's pretty interesting when you grab the original 1999 Act book, which is where uh, Hayes, Strassel, and Wilson walked out what is acceptance and commitment therapy. um, On the back is Les Greenberg, uh, Leslie S. Greenberg, which contributed one of the, you know, quotes about the book before it was published. And so to connect these, Les Greenberg, the creator of or founder of Emotional Focused Therapy, one of the founders, yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the founders was trained in Gestalt psychology, which is on the back of the ACT book. So all these folks, in a sense, are interested in the same phenomenon, coming at it from different angles, I would say. And so we're actually going to include a article called Awareness and Acceptance, a Critical Analysis of the Theories of Health and Change in Gestalt Therapy and Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. If anyone wants to dive in and just like understand the differences between those more. Yeah, and so I think that there is a a suggestion that possibly with this emotion focused therapy, with some of the Gestalt therapy, that this actually did sort of evolve or continue to evolve out of the contextual behavioral science uh, that is the foundation of acceptance and commitment training. Um, although they're all psychologists, many psychologists who would reject that comparison and that analysis, they just um, they think that that's not an appropriate conclusion to make. So. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of all we have to say about it. That's that's sort of gestalt in a nutshell, if you will, that it is this general orientation to psychology as looking at, and I, th- I mean, I think this really is oriented primarily around human psychology and not necessarily extending out beyond that. Although they did talk about the frogs, so, so maybe they do, that this is intended to be more inclusive, but that the organism, and we'll say humans in this case, but the organism's interaction with the world is a a holistic thing it is not just the perceiving bits and pieces of information but perceiving them as a contextual whole and that that there's something unique about understanding how we cognitively process that information in such a way that we can abstract different meanings from the same context and i think that's part of the reason they like talking about that multi-stability concept Mm -hmm. of that we can see or perceive a particular context and immediately switch our frame of mind and get a totally opposite or different or unrelated perception of that contextual event. And so that that seems to be the intention of of this approach to understanding psychology, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think this also warrants a uh, follow-up sometime with an interview or something of that nature with someone that's in this uh, area of psychology. That'd be actually yeah. really fun to try to sort out. I agree. Next time I talk to Steve, I definitely want to ask him about the uh, the quote on the back. I bet you there's a cool story there. Yeah, that's a really great point. I agree um, since we kind of know him now, which is great. <laughs> and it appears that Leslie uh, Greenberg's the director of the FT Clinic up in Toronto. Nice. Um, at York University. So maybe we got to make cool. a trip up to York University sometime our, you our very first field trip just for that yeah why not <laughs> well you travel a lot more than i do so you know taking a week off to go do stuff is a little bit bigger of a deal for me <laughs> just but, book the trip man just go for it tell you what if we get enough patreon supporters we can do an enormous amount of research and production on an episode focusing on that entire trip <laughs> like we get so many episodes out of it like videos all of Maybe it. a blog post if you want. Bam. I don't know. We'll make, we'll make it happen. You let us know what you want to have happen there. If you're willing to uh, to back it, we'll do it. <laughs> so if you all have ideas, please let us know how how and what they are. Yeah. I think one other thing that I would like to end on with talking about Gestalt is just this 
this comparison to the sort of uh, behaviorist movement that was mentioned at the beginning and was sort of peppered throughout in relation to the acceptance and commitment training, which also came out of the behaviorist movement. And that in there's, there seems to be the description of the sort of contrast of these things being totally different and being familiar with the cognitive approach and the behaviorist approach and even the humanistic approach. These things have a lot of overlap. And it, I don't, I don't actually see Gestalt as being like an opposite of behaviorism sort of thing. I think no. that the behaviorists could talk about the Gestalt experience and do so without a problem, and Gestalt could probably talk about uh, talk about the behaviorist experience and do so just fine as well. So, I, I think that talking about them as these contrasting ideas is not really an accurate way of depicting how those relate. I think they're just different orientations. There's a little bit different vernacular language about how to describe uh, the human experience and sort of events out in the world. And, I'm, and I was going to say, I'm sure there's a difference in the philosophy a little bit too that then alters yeah. those sort of things. Yeah, that's a fair point. That there, yeah, there's sort of a difference in the underlying worldview, but that they're not, they don't necessarily stand in contrast to one another. They are just different approaches to the the naturalistic phenomenon of the universe. Well said, man. I think that's where we wrap this up. Sweet. That'll be our next t shirt. So <laughs> <laughs> this is where we wrap this up. <laughs> oh, sure. No, I'm, I'm, I meant the like <laughs> so if perception of the universe part. <laughs> If y'all have any ideas, we're thinking about throwing some fun little t-shirts online. So let us know if you have any down in the comments, anywhere on social media. We'll hear all of those places. You can do that afterwards. And as always, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Which depicts a demolition. Dalmatian. Yeah, I can. I can read. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what's the point of this? <laughs> Just you got it, man. If it sucks, I'll cut it out. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm struggling, man. It's um, okay. Is that good enough? Yes. Out of all this, <laughs> just got me on one of those like <laughs> giggle train. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that little tissy fit, man. Oh my god. Okay. Compose myself.
Right. <laughs> Gestalt in a nutshell. <laughs> Gestalt in a nutshell. 